0: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. This is the second part of a two-part episode, guest hosted by T.J. Moffitt and Colonel Johnny Drake, as they interviewed Colonel Joe Ruzicka about his time serving on a U.N. peacekeeping team in Mali. If you'd like to hear the first part of this episode, it was released on 12 December 2023 and can be found either on your podcatcher of choice or on our website warroom.armywarcollege.edu forward slash podcasts. And now I'll let TJ make introductions.
2: I'm TJ Moffitt, Deputy Director of the Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute, located at the U.S. Army War College, and your host today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. We're excited to have United States Army Colonel Joe Rosichka join us today after returning from a 10-month deployment in Bamako Mali where he served as the senior U.S. military observer and command group advisor in the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali, also known as MINUSMA. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you. We are also happy to have Colonel Johnny Drake, an Army FAO Foreign Area Officer, who is currently the Peace Ops Division Chief in PKSOI. It's good to be with you, TJ and Joe. Today we're going to talk about Colonel Rosichka's experience with the UN mission in Mali. First, we'd like to talk about the mandate that was established in 2013 by a unanimous decision of the Security Council. It was a chapter seven mandate to take military action to restore peace and security in Mali. It also authorized all means necessary. Fast forward 10 years later, And the government of Mali, which has transferred power from a democratically elected civilian president to a coup-led colonel, and we now have a new mandate. The new government in 2023 demanded that the UN depart from Mali by the end of
0: the year, giving it approximately six months to leave. Joe, could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of the mission Um, and uh, so so some of the things that led to a loss of faith uh, from even member states in the mission, uh, but also from the Malian government, uh, maybe some of the credibility challenges that they faced uh, over the preceding years?
1: Yeah, so I think— when we talk about the, the government of Mali and, and their their lack of faith or lack of trust in, in Minusma, so the, the mission lasted a little over 10 years. Um, and, and I think what they saw inside their country was violence or violent extremist organizations, um, terrorist organizations actually grew inside of the country. So the complexity of, of, of the environment and the the desire to have nations contribute troops doesn't necessarily bring the best best available force into the country. So one particular example, we had an element that was responsible for uh, convoy security, or logistics security. And unfortunately, early in their time, uh, they they suffered a uh, uh, IAD attack and had catastrophic casualties. But that incident, instead of taking their training or their, their perceived training or what we thought that they had, and taking in new TTPs and continuing to do the mission, this this, this element just shut down. And so for nine months of their 12-month tour, they refused to do any type of mission. They would not leave the super camp. They would not do what they had been given to MINUSMA to do. Um, it, but there, there's no accountability to that organization or that that country to get them back into the fight per se, to get them to do what they're asked to do. Instead, they're 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 on the super camp. They still collect the the monetary stipend uh, that is given to every UN soldier, and you know they're they're still. Um, cared for and fed and, and, and everything and in, inside of Mali, but they're not doing what's what's asked of them. And again, from a from a even the civilian leadership, the SRSG, there, there's no there's no way that they can hold that organization accountable. So they have to work back through the UN and back through the Security Council to try to get either the country to get their element to participate uh, in, in missions or Pull them from the mission and now we can replace them or find another country to contribute um, the, the necessary soldiers to accomplish that. But then again, lack of trust is I, I think from the Malian government standpoint, they just I don't know that they saw the benefits of having MINUSMA there. So their problems were primarily security related uh, problems. And MINUSMA, at least in, in Mali's case, is that that UN organization is not structured, resource or built in a way to counter those violent extremist organizations or combat that terrorist activity that's going on. So I think that leads to the lack of trust and faith from the government.
0: Right. So so previous force commanders in different missions have even advocated for giving the UN, UN forces more teeth, uh, more offensive capability uh, to address some of those. Because if you don't address them, you're... You're you're opening yourself to be questioned. You know what are you doing here if you can't take down these groups that are attacking uh, civilians? Well, exactly.
1: If if MINUSMA in this case MINUSMA or the UN does not have the capability to do that, then the host nation is going to find a partner that brings the capability to do that. And in this case, what we saw was Molly um, was not happy with Barkane or the French uh, third party organization that was dealing with the violent extremists. So they brought in a, a new partner, uh, which was Wagner associated with Russia to to deal with what they believe is their number one security problem. And that is um, the violent extremist organizations that operate. Now, I think in Molly's mind, that partner is going to provide them with the capability to build time and space. To regain the sovereignty of their country, it's still a sovereign nation, but you have a you have a split uh, between the north and and the south, which is is Bamako on, on what that country looks like. And until Mali is able to establish security, I don't know that they can, uh, deal with
2: that that second problem set. So when you talk about bringing in the third party, and we talk about Wagner in this case, uh, one of the main reasons that seems to have motivated the government of Mali to move towards terminating the, the UN presence was a, uh, a raid in the town of Mora where uh, many white armed gunsmen were identified as coming in and, and doing a massacre of almost 500 people, which the UN subsequently investigated. The conclusion being that those, those white men were from Wagner although there was no definitive uh, evidence of that, that was the conclusion. I think in that damage, if we assume that it was Wagner in that case, and Wagner along with Malian troops, because there were Malian troops there as well, uh, as we look at the government's way ahead with the UN leaving, do you think that they believe that Wagner is going to help more than the United Nations mission – and do you think that uh, that Wagner is going to be the reliable partner that they believe them to be?
1: So I think I think, and we've we've touched on this uh, a little bit before, right? So if if we get if we remove the UN presence and we remove the blue helmets, then we remove the potentially watchful eye that prevents or is able to investigate human rights atrocities that may occur. Um, I, I think in changing the mandate to ask. Minusma to withdraw within six months, gives the government of Mali an opportunity to solely partner with Wagner and then potentially do things the way they want to do things without the fear of that watchful eye. Because um, as we saw during our time there, the government of Mali became very restrictive in what they would allow UN to do. We don't have a lot of ISR capability. We don't have a lot of aircraft capability. But the, the ones that we do have that were able to provide some type of uh, ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance for for ground forces, or if we did get um, th- uh, some some indications of human rights violations, potentially investigate those, uh, they would restrict the movement of those air assets to the point where they, they would deny or ground our air assets and not allow them to fly or only allow them to fly specific routes that uh, when you do an overlay of where uh, the Malian uh, Defense Forces Wagner operate versus where they deny our aerial flights. There, there's clear indication that there's operations going on that they don't want the UN to see. Um, so I think by removing the UN, it, allow, it gives them the ability to potentially do what they want to do with Wagner uh, to establish the security inside of their country and then maintain the sovereignty of that country.
0: Why was the U.N. so ready to continue on with such – freedom of movement is one of the kind of key principles of conducting peacekeeping uh, operations. Um, when it was clear that it was getting more and more restrictive, why was the U.N. tolerant of that and um, willing to to continue the mission rather than uh, give sterner warnings or to actually threaten or collapse the mission? So I think
1: – Um, And that's what we we expected the mandate change to be something along the lines of what you just described. Um, Okay, hey, here's some here's some more strict benchmarks or uh, measures of performance measures of effectiveness to show that the UN is actually contributing to a better molly. I think that so it's not financially beneficial to some to to stop a UN mission. There's a huge um, financial cost that goes into a UN mission. And from from the force side, some of those some of the wages that a, a country gets from participating in a UN mission, that's life changing for some of these countries and some of these forces. It's the same for the civilian side of any UN mission, or at least the mission in Mali. It is it is a very financially lucrative operation to be a civilian, or to work inside of these UN missions. So depending on on what the influence is, um, you know, at the higher levels of the United Nations in collapsing or changing a mission, there's a lot of there's probably a lot of bureaucracy and politics that are involved um, to to prevent a mission from closing down. And, and I think that's one thing in my time there that that I, I really struggled with, there's no real accountability to measure how well a mission is doing. And I think in the, in in the case of Mali, so again there for ten plus years, trying to establish a more peaceful country. And the day the mandate changed, we saw on the ground. So from June 30th to July 31st, we saw a return to pre peace accord violence, if not an escalation in violence in that country. And today, you can read anything open source, and you can see uh, the the magnitude of violence inside of that country is staggering. So the the accountability piece or the accountability apparatus to show success to the end state of any un mission i think is lacking uh in in some areas
2: and that's a discussion that uh that has been ongoing now for at least a decade is how do we establish metrics to determine success and failure and reinforce success when we need to, especially in changing circumstances as the political situation changes, right? Yeah, very much. And, you know, the other thing too, as you look at it, uh, you, you talked about within the mission and within the force, but, you know, what is the UN headquarters doing when they are looking at renewing a mandate? when they are determining, you know, we're being more restricted right now, we can't get this movement, what are we willing to take? What are we not willing to take? What are the strategic discussions that are happening in New York City, and between capitals over the, the mission there? And I know that in the force, you don't have a, you don't have access to that. But I, I offer that one, because we're here at the Army War College talking strategy and strategic issues. But uh, also because uh a lot of times we don't know what's happening at the national level. And for the UN headquarters, we'd call that, I mean, we can kind of consider that the national level for the, uh, for the, for the UN missions that are, that are being executed. And So I think the conversations that are happening in UN headquarters uh, definitely impact what and what, what they will and will not do in the mission and, and why we keep driving forward. And, uh, and unfortunately, that goes back to, again, the metrics. Uh, what are they looking at other than the reports from the mission uh, to determine whether or not they should continue?
1: Right. And I think part of that goes to, you know, the makeup of the Security Council. So – you know, Mali has, has chosen Russia uh, as, as their strategic partner. And so it, part of whatever decision the Security Council has to make, it has to take into consideration, okay, what backing are we going to get from Mali's strategic partners? Um, and so I think that that definitely comes into play in the whatever conversations they're having uh, inside of that headquarters, obviously not not privy to those down down on the ground in the force headquarters. But, you know, I think as, as they go to relook uh, and renew mandates, and you start putting in metrics, it, it has to be something that's agreeable uh, from from all parties. And I think that's
2: hard to do in, in this day and age. You know, you mentioned Russia as a, uh, as a member of the Security Council, but we've been talking Wagner mostly. So what do you see as Russia's role? Does the Russian government have a significant role or is just the fact that Wagner has been there now and has established itself and is is continuing to build its influence within the country as opposed to the political influence of of russia
1: yeah so i think it'll be interesting to see how the russia and wagner piece plays out in the future in mali um for me a couple things during my time there and i and i did spend some time uh weekly with the u.s embassy there in bamako and and had a fantastic relationship uh with with the embassy but you did see a increase in partnership Uh, discussions, talks, visits from senior Russian uh, leadership, uh, civilian leadership into Bamako, and then and then members of the Malian government going into to Russia for various conferences and and meetings. So there is definitely a a growing partnership between Russia and Mali. Um, You know, most of the Malian equipment right now um, is is Russian uh, I think there were two large shipments of equipment that came to Mali from Russia when we were there and uh, you know we're talking about aircraft whether it's the uh, su25 or um, the mi8 mi17s that that they fly or the I think it's the l39 albatross so a lot of the aircraft that they have are Russian made and y- you do see a lot of of, of Russian, Uh, influence, I think, in some of the decisions that are being made in Mali. And there is a growing partnership, I think, at the strategic level uh, of those two countries, and definitely, definitely military capabilities. Now, I I think the the big indication will be, what does the future look like? with Russia. So right now, obviously, Russia is, is tied up in, in Ukraine and, and has a fight going on in Ukraine. But I think if we start to see conventional Russian forces in some of these Northwest African countries, I think strategically, we really need to look at, okay, how do we how do we better counter
2: um, the Russian influence in some of these areas? Johnny is as, uh, as someone who's studied Russia extensively in the last 1015 years of your career, with the uh, out of the picture, how do you see that that relationship evolving? Do you think that the Russian government will now become more involved? Or uh do you think that that Wagner will just continue to be a a, a paid military organization?
0: Well, I, I think that the uh the Russian government has taken steps over the past few months, especially since Prigozhin's uh uh the uh coup or this march to Moscow, um this uh this uh, legendary flame-out uh, move that he made. The Russian government has taken steps over the past couple of months to uh, rein in the Wagner Group to, to seize control uh, of some of their assets, their financial assets, the infrastructure that they've got, the rights that they have access to, and even in some cases tell directly their partner governments that uh, no longer will you work with uh, uh the heads of these uh, entities um that you'll work kind of through us um now there's still subsidiaries working in these countries uh but i think that we're seeing more and more r- state control uh uh of of the Wagner enterprise and Wagner Wagner group is not just one group right mm-hmm. it's uh it's uh, a few dozen enterprises that work in different parts of the world, um, in mostly fragile states uh, that have natural resources of some sort, uh, something to benefit financially the owners and the operators, but. Um, But I think, like Joe said, it'll be interesting to see what happens as this – does this transition to more conventional force or more formal, uh, overt ownership of the Russian state? Or does it stay in a uh, uh, semi-paramilitary type uh, outfit?
2: And, of course, in the near future, we can't forget that the conflict in Ukraine is is – consuming Russia's attention right now. And and they may be a little bit more open to letting some of these subsidiaries continue with what they're doing as long as they don't get out of line, maybe.
0: Right, right. Uh, so Joe, I have to ask, um, last question for my part, I believe anyway, is uh, you know there's a tendency whenever a UN mission collapses, especially under these circumstances where the host country has asked the UN to leave. Um, some questions about other UN missions that are ongoing right now and, and what their future might be and, and you know, re- kind of reviewing how long they've been there and the sort of stagnation and peace process movements. Um, and there's always a tendency to ask, you know, is the UN fit for purpose? Does the UN construct for peacekeeping? And remember this is its only tool in its toolkit for, for at least hard power. Is it conducive to enabling, preserving, and promoting peace in these fragile states in the 21st century? And uh, I'd love to just get your take on it.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, so. I asked my question, or this question to myself quite a bit, is whether or not peacekeeping operations is still relevant in the 21st century. And I think the world is only getting more and more complex. And if you just take Mali, uh, for example, and all the 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 actors that are involved in Mali, whether it's state or non state actors. Um, and then what the UN a peacekeeping force to do, I'm, I'm not sure that peacekeeping operations or stability operations, as we know it, and the the construct or the resourcing of, of that force is, is something that we should continue with or is viable for the 21st century. Um, what we lacked in Mali, you know, there is no so there's a couple things, right, you have to have peace enforcement, uh, you know, peacekeeping and then you have to establish peace first. Um, and the UN and a peacekeeping force is not structured to do to do those. Um, they lack intelligence capa- uh, collection capabilities. They lack, you know, in Molly's case, the UN peacekeeping force lacks a counterterrorism um, apparatus that is that that is able to be controlled by the force commander and not relied upon through a third party, you know, first, we had Barkane and now we have Wagner, there trying to do the counterterrorism fight, but the UN specific to peacekeeping mission does not have its own inherent force that the force commander can control to combat that. So, you know, when we talk about establishing security and establishing peace, I, I don't think uh, – my, my personal opinion is I don't think the current construct of peacekeeping forces is is going to work going forward in a complex world that we live in.
0: So it needs to adapt in some way if, if revolution of uh, the UN peacekeeping apparatus is not feasible – some sort of drastic evolution uh, to change the way intel is is conducted. You've talked previously about logistics uh, um, uh, and uh, other other leaders have advocated for um, in the DRC for instance they have this force intervention brigade. Um, but at, at you know looking for more active ways to combat these armed elements and extremist organizations that are wreaking havoc in these societies.
1: yeah, I, I think there does there needs to be a retooling of, of the current construct to to, uh, to enable the force to do what you're asking it to do, whether it's enforce peace, keep peace, establish peace, regardless of any of those three in at least the experience in Mali, the force does not have the capability to do that. Um, it does not it does not have uh, the intelligence capability, um, the logistical capability, nor the firepower to to establish that. And so in order to allow the peace process to move forward in, in specifically Mali's case and allow the peace process to mo- move forward, you have to establish that secure environment. And the U.N. peacekeeping um, force cannot do that alone. So that's why you see Mali requiring other outside organizations to try to establish that peace before they can move forward. And again, it's just too many actors I think to establish a stable environment side of the country.
2: I know there's considerations of, uh, of trying to bring in regional forces to, to deal with peacekeeping, but we see the same thing right now in, in the democratic Republic of Congo with regards to the regional force that's there, that's now been asked to leave in December as well. So we now have two, uh, areas that we could consider uh, relatively unstable that are now going to be uh, void of any kind of international tool, and that the UN peacekeeping right now it's the only tool that we have uh, for this kind of thing. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier. You mentioned the one point two billion dollar price tag of a of a UN mission, but we in the United States we we spend that in a week in a place like Afghanistan. Uh, so if there's a way to do it uh, in a more cost-effective way with an international response as opposed to a unilateral response, I think that we have an obligation to try to find that solution. Um, and And maybe it is somewhere between the regional force and a UN force. Uh, I think in talking to you, you had some some really good recommendations in terms of of a way ahead for that. But some of them seem politically uh, very difficult to accomplish when you consider all the members of the general assembly that, uh, uh especially the troop contributing countries that, that are so appreciated, especially the the small countries that just have uh, huge contributions compared to the size of their militaries, uh, they're necessary, but how do we bring them all into a common standard? How do we bring them into a common planning process? How do we overcome this stigma within the United nations that intelligence is bad, uh, how do you overcome the obstacle of information operations when all you can do is respond to uh, a misdisinformation uh, action by trying to counter it on social media when you can't uh, find a way to preemptively react to it and get the word out or in a country as big as mali which uh, is is huge i mean you gave a comparison earlier today about the size, I don't remember exactly, compared to the U.S. If you could- yeah,
1: so the country of Mali, if you overlay it on the map of the United States, from Canada to Mexico, and then it covers the entire Midwest, um, so... so- the the country is massive um for me to to travel me and my team to travel if we wanted to go to the farthest uh super camp which is to uh in northern Mali, it was a three-hour plane ride from bamako the capital to another super camp of gao um and that's on a fixed-wing aircraft and then it's an hour and a half helicopter flight from gao up to to so that that's just the the distance and so if you compare to hey how are we how are you moving about the united states you know it's it's very similar to going from one coast to to the other sometimes and then and that's just moving me and two other peacekeepers now if you're talking about moving an entire contingent which might be 5000 peacekeepers That's, that's a huge, and the road infrastructure does not support overland movement. That's a huge uh, task to move that, that force from one, one position in in the country to another.
2: And no rail, and you have to wait until the raining season to to
1: move Uh, by. Yeah. And and so as we, as we withdraw from Mali, uh, that's, that's the biggest challenge is how the people are easy. We can put them on airplanes and get them out, but 10 years of equipment, um, you know, right now, we're we're trying to consolidate at the various super camps. Well, one of the super camps is in Timbuktu. And I'm sure some of the listen, listeners will think Timbuktu is a joke. It's actually, it's a real place in Mali. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but really, the only way to effectively get that equipment out in mass quantities is via the river, the Niger River. And that's a barge operation that can only operate during the rainy season. So it's roughly August to about um, September or uh, October, November timeframe. Um Unfortunately, uh my last week or so there there, there was a a uh, terrorist attack on a civilian barge or a civilian ferry that was on the river where 49 civilians were massacred. Um so the government of Mali shut down all all barge operations for. Us. So now MINUSMA is again hampered to try to to try to get the equipment out of there. So the the complexity of the country whether it's just the tyranny of distance or all the non-state actors is it's It's very limiting in how a peacekeeping operation can be effectively put in place there.
2: And I think as we talk about going forward with peacekeeping in the 21st century, and we just talked about some of the – things that need to be considered, I think that's one as well, because Congo is, is a huge country. And when the UN undertakes a mission like this, I think it's going to have to take that into consideration. They have limited, as you said, limited uh, transportation assets, limited air assets. Uh, one thing you didn't mention is that those things are controlled by the civilian side of the mission. So the force commander doesn't have those rapidly at his disposal or her disposal to be able to, to use those things. And so there's a lot of challenges just with the tyranny of distance when you consider a mission going into a country and where 17,000 uh, civilians and soldiers may sound like a lot uh, when you're looking at that that square right. miles, acres, whatever they, in my kilometers, that's a lot of space to cover with uh, just a very, very small group.
1: Yeah, and it is. And again, when when we talk about, Hey, you know, there's 17,000 people there. What What's the problem? Well, when, when 90% of that force is just dedicated to try to get resupply to the various camps, that doesn't leave you with the ability to get into the population and interact with the population from a UN standpoint and spread the message that you need to spread or the information that you need to spread, let alone, uh, protect civilians or prevent human rights atrocities because you just can't be there. Um, and again, um, it's just not structured to be successful in the country of Mali. Do you have any last questions?
0: Well, I would just ask: like, would you, uh, as you look back at this last year, clearly there are going to be other U.S. peacekeepers. What would you say to uh, someone who uh, is considering a tour in a UN peacekeeping mission?
1: So I would, I would encourage it. Um, I had no idea what to expect uh, when I when I went to Mali. I think my to my assignment officer, when he told me I was going to Mali, I, I asked him the country and then I asked what was there. (laughs) Um, but I, you know, I would encourage it because it gives you, it gives you a different view of something that, throughout your military career, whichever service you you are in that you're probably going to interact with in the future. And so it gives you a better understanding. And it gives you an intelligence level or a, a a knowledge base to now speak intelligently. And when people bring up, hey, the UN is this or the UN is that now you can speak from a a position of, of knowledge, because you have been there. And, And then the the other thing is the relationships you build with with some of the countries that, that you serve with is it is something that will stay with you. It's like nothing you, you get in the United States military. Um, you know, you, who knew who knew I would be serving with a female major from Pakistan, trying to figure out the budget for Manusma in Mali, right? But she was incredibly intelligent. And she was very successful at what she did. But that's just not something you get from a military US military standpoint. So um, I, I think I, I would encourage anybody who is who, who wants to do it, you can volunteer for it. Um, otherwise, you, you potentially get tasked with it. But
2: uh, it, it's something I would highly encourage. Well, it's definitely a way to maintain relations with allies and partners, but it's also a way for us to keep some of those coalition skills together, that we that we don't have that opportunity in Iraq or Afghanistan anymore. So how often, maybe you serve at NATO headquarters, but to be exposed to so many different cultures, right. so many different uh, ways of doing things. And I will say, I left Usmog as the commander in 2013, and I still hear from folks who served in UN missions while I was in that job who are connected to their international colleagues and have visited or even moved to other countries too because they were inspired by those people. So I'm glad to hear that you think that it was a, a great opportunity. Uh, we're really happy that you took the time to come and talk to us because I know that we've, we've had you all day, not just during this podcast. And so uh, I think we got our, our money's worth with you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your service in Mali, uh, and uh, you know, continue to, to help us help the UN get better. And Johnny, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks, TJ
1: gentlemen thanks for having me um i can't i can't get off the podcast without i don't know if anybody will listen to it but uh you know the 10 people that were with me um again i had it, there was a total of six u.s army i had three air force two marines um and they were they were fantastic and uh i appreciate uh, those 10 individuals for what they went through for the past past year and the the professionalism that they demonstrated on a daily basis so i gotta thank them before i get off
2: Yes, i got to think of the teammates. They were instrumental in in all of your success, and thank you.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this
1: podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com. armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.